You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening is from 1 John 5, 13 to 21. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so thankful for this short letter that you have given us, that you have by your Spirit revealed to us through your servant John. We pray that you would indeed in us seal our hearts, that you might give us confidence to approach your throne, that we might be yours and yours forever. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. If I haven't met you, my name is Nathan. I'd love to say hello and get to know you a bit after the service. Uh, We are here at the end of this tremendous short little letter, this short book of the Bible of 1 John. 1 John, as we have thought about over the past many weeks together, is a letter about God. 1 John is about the gospel. 1 John is about love. 1 John is about faith. And I really hope that your understanding and your application of all of these truths and realities have have increased, have deepened just a little bit uh, over the past several weeks together. Uh, Several of you have come to me uh, this evening saying, so excited about Leviticus. I had no idea so many people would be as excited as you are about starting the book of Leviticus next week. Just to give you a heads up, Um, we're going to do kind of a 30,000-foot flyover. Maybe many of you would have hoped we would have spent like nine months in Leviticus. The plan is, this is probably an overly ambitious plan, the plan is to do, think about the whole book together over five weeks. Uh, I might realize that's too ambitious and we're going to have to slow it down. But uh, can I just encourage you, we'll put these in the weekly email on Thursday, but uh, maybe sometime this week, uh, find the Bible Project overview video of the book of Leviticus. There's two of them, actually, uh, that are really helpful. And then plan towards uh, reading reading chapters 1 through 7, all the different kinds of sacrifices that are introduced in those first seven chapters of Leviticus for next Sunday. But we're not there yet, and I'm excited that we're not, because there's so much here in the last half of chapter 5 in 1 John. Uh, I said that there's, this letter is about a lot of things, about 
God, the gospel, love, and faith. And can we just talk about faith for just a second? Uh, like, we Americans, we really, really like to talk about faith. But when we do, we like to talk about faith in a way that is pretty generally vague. Uh, just think about all, the, all of the different kinds of bumper stickers about faith that you see. You might see one that says, got faith, like faith is equal to milk or something, as long as you've got it. Uh, just a bumper sticker that you might see that just says, I believe. That's it. In what? Who, do, who cares? As long as that person believes in something. Uh, I was Googling lots of faith bumper stickers this week. It's something that you might see that says, like, faith up. Like, you got to faith up yourself. Or, like, America needs a faith lift. Uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, American soccer fans chant before every U.S. national team game. They chant, I believe that we will win. I believe that we will win. And it doesn't matter if the American national team is playing Panama or Portugal, a terrible team or a good team. It's like, as long as we all chant together good vibes, then that means victory. And that's not what happens. That is not reality. Uh, Think about like Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. It was Indy's love for his father, James Bond, uh, that caused him... uh, you're with me, uh, that caused him to take the, the leap of faith at the end uh, of the last crusade there. I think Indiana Jones did not really believe that there was this invisible bridge there, but he knew that he had to do something or his dad was going to die. It really, in that sense, was not his faith that rewarded him. The bridge was going to save him whether or not he believed that there was a bridge there or not. He was actually surprised that it actually was there. When I was looking up faith bumper stickers, I also found some snarky atheist ones, uh, like faith equals intellectual suicide. If you have faith in something, then you're not actually thinking for yourself. Or I saw another one that says, Jesus saves, dot, 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 you from thinking for yourself. Well, in his conclusion to this letter, John is going to tell us that we do not have a blind faith. We do not have a vague faith. We have a very specific faith. We do not have a faith in some spirituality out there, some nameless God. We don't try the best we can, cross our fingers, and hope that it all turns out in the end. Rather, we have a sure faith, a sure faith in a sure God, a sure person in specific events events in history that should lead to not intellectual suicide, but a vibrant and intellectual life. In short, John tells his readers that his intent for this entire letter was that they might know. And so we're going to think about uh, the things that we might know with certainty about God, about ourselves, uh, today in this second half of this last chapter of 1 John. So John writes, so his readers and we can know four different things here. And that's the, the subtitles of the headings that we're going to think through tonight. That we can know eternal life, that we can know who we are, that we can know who we belong to, and who, we can know who is true. We can know eternal life, who we are, who we belong to, and who is true. So first of all, that we might know eternal life. John knows that after last week, some of you might even be wondering, am I born of God? Am I Uh, a child of God? Do I have a spiritual rebirth? Do I actually love God and his commandments? I'm all of a sudden flooded with doubt and anxiety, anxiety again. Am I a Christian? 
If I'm reflecting on my life and there's still sin, am I a Christian? Well, John now is going to give us the entire reason that he wrote this letter. He sums the entire letter up in chapter 5, verse 13. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Surety, assurance, confidence. John is directly countering our idea in some vague spirituality. While there is a growing number of Americans who are like adamantly atheistic, many, if not most Americans, still believe in God. Most Americans certainly would value this idea of faith, that faith in whatever is a good thing to have. But John is saying that believing in God is good, but believing in God is actually not good enough. It is not faith that saves you. It is the object of your faith that saves you. If you saw me, like, take out all of the screws from this stool on the inside, and then you nevertheless still walked up just a couple of seconds after I took out all the screws, and you were going to just sit on this stool, I would stop you, say, no, you just saw what happened. This thing is not capable of holding you up. How ridiculous would you be if you said, but I have faith. I have faith. It'll hold me. I believe it. I believe that we will win. No. Then the stool crashes, it breaks, and you have to go to the chiropractor. PT, you have to go to the physical therapist, not the chiropractor. The idea of like just believing or good vibes or having faith in just faith is utterly ridiculous. And our atheistic friends are absolutely right to ridicule that. Good vibes are silly, just emotions. So John says, as he said over and over again, it's believing in the name of Jesus as the Christ who saves you, not just faith in good vibes. Chapter 4, verse 2, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Chapter 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, is what saves you, not your faith or even the degree of your faith. Did you hear what I just said? Your faith does not save you. Jesus saves you. It is your faith in Jesus that saves you. But then he says, if you do have faith in this Jesus, then you can know that you have eternal life. You can know that you are his. If you are believing in him right now, he says, I write these things to you who believe, like in the present. Those of you who are believing in him right now, I'm writing this that you might know you have eternal life. Not like those who went out from us, like the ones that he mentioned in chapter two, those who were professing faith in Jesus, but then left their faith. Not like those of you who prayed some prayer when you were a little kid, but now show no sign of ongoing faith in Jesus. But for those who are now trusting in Jesus, who are walking in the light, as he talked about in chapters one and two. That is, you see sin as God sees it. You agree with God about sin. You confess it, that you are trusting in the blood of Jesus to cleanse you. What makes someone a Christian? Someone who has life from God. Someone who is clinging to Jesus, abiding in him. Imperfectly, 
but perseveringly. And like we'll begin to consider in Leviticus next week, we don't have to wonder about whether or not the gods out there will find our sacrifice, our worship, our obedience pleasing or acceptable or not. We have to just do as best we can and hope that it all turns out in the end. No, if you are Jesus's, God is pleased with you because he is pleased with the sacrifice and the worship and the obedience of Jesus. You can be absolutely sure. A mighty fortress is our God. No scheme of hell. What's the lyric? No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. For I know, we just sang, for I know thy power will keep me till I'm home with thee at last. Your power, not mine. You will keep me if I am clinging to Jesus. It is God's life, his power, his mighty fortress that keeps us until the end. So abide there, stay there. Keep yourself near the cross. Walk with Jesus. Walk with Jesus that you may know eternal life. But by knowing eternal life, we move into a deeper knowledge of actually who we are now and forever. So, secondly, we know who we are. Verses 14 and 15, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. So at first, this doesn't really seem like this has anything to do with the heading that I just gave you. Right? We know who we are. It looks like he's just completely changed, changed the subject. Here we have, been, we've been talking about being born of God. We have been thinking about like tests for our spiritual rebirth. We've been thinking about the testimony of God last week uh, as a person. We've been thinking about life in Christ. Even just now, the verse before this, we've been thinking about eternal assurance. And then he says, oh yeah, and that brings me to my next point. Uh, if you want a new job, if you want a new car, if you want to get into college or get into a better school, or if you want to get a better job, if you want to get married, just ask God and he'll give you anything you want. Wait, what? Like this seemingly does not follow at all from what he has been writing and arguing. Well, first of all, before I tell you why I don't think that John is changing the subject, we've, we've talked about prayer many times over the years, but is John actually saying, just ask God whatever you want and he'll give it to you? Like, how would you answer someone if they came to you and said, hey, uh, you're a Christian, right? Uh, I was reading in 1 John 5 this week, and verse 15 says that, if, that God hears whatever we ask. Well, I've been praying for a new car for six months, and it hasn't happened. Uh, John is a liar. The Bible is not trustworthy or true. Like, how would you answer this? What, how would you think through these things that your unbelieving or even your believing friend might be asking you? Well, we can't ignore that little phrase there. According to his will. First John 5, 15, and we know that he hears, oh, where is it? 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So we've mentioned Psalm 37, 4 before, that delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. God's desires, when we are delighting, delighting in him, uh, become your desires, not your desires, become his desires for you. 
We begin to pray for things that are his desires according to his will. Also that we pray over the entire range of responses that God might give, meaning we pray with thanksgiving in however God might choose to answer us, which is what Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Some might say that God did not answer Jesus's prayer of taking that cup of suffering from him, but he did. He just answered him. God the Father answered him saying, no, this is the divine will for you and for the world, and that is good. And the God-man, Christ the Son, received that with thanksgiving and with obedience and with joy. Or as we've thought through more times than I could count when Tim Keller says that we can be sure that God answers our prayers in exactly the way that we would want them to be answered if we knew everything that God knows. That is, according to his will. But here's John's point to all this. I don't think he's really talking about getting our prayer requests answered here. Nor do I think that he has changed our subject about our assurance of our life in Christ. What he's talking about here actually flows from his argument. He is still talking about assurance. He is still talking about confidence. He says, this is our confidence that if we ask anything, he hears us. John is saying, how incredible is this? We, creatures, insignificant ones, former enemies of God, spiritual corpses, lonely orphans, we are now his friends. We are now alive to him. We are now sons and daughters, adopted children. He hears you. The emphasis of 5, 14, and 15 is not on the answering, but is on the hearing. God hears the prayers of his children. How silly would it be for me to like, I don't even know if this number exists, if I just Googled the 1-800 hotline of the White House. How silly would it be for me to call that number every day and say, uh, yes, can I please speak to the president? This is Nathan from Albuquerque. Uh, Mr. Joe, can you do something about the inflation, please? Uh, Mr. President, my friends Miles and Angela are still waiting on their oven that they thought that they might have in September. Can you please fix the supply chain? Uh, Like, that would be really, really silly for me to call the White House every single day with requests. I could make that call, but I would get hung up on. It is impossible to get a hearing with the president unless you know someone. Well, imagine a being of infinitely more power and authority than President Biden. Like the creator and the sustainer of the entire universe. And John, along with the writer of the Hebrews, says that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. We can get a hearing with God the Father because we know someone. We know someone who can arrange these appointments and bring us in. He is our advocate and our representative. He is our savior and friend, which is what this entire letter has been all about. And incidentally, is what the entire book of Leviticus is all about too. Because of the name of Jesus Christ and our union with him, we can actually know God. Communion with God. We can know him and know the life that he gives through Christ. We can can communicate with the God of the universe as we would with a good father, which is incredible. 
I think we just take this for granted as Christians who have perhaps grown up in the church and grown up around the Bible that we can communicate and talk, bringing our request with the infinite, eternal, all-powerful God of the universe. What confidence, what assurance this brings to us. And so John Piper says, prayer is not hoping in the dark. There might be a God of good intentions out there. That is not prayer. No, prayer is drawing on the account where God has deposited all his stores of future grace, and in prayer, we go to the bank. God is there, and he has deposited stores of grace for us. And in prayer, we're just going to withdraw, just going to receive grace, to receive more and more deep communion with him. Not just hoping that there's a God out there that maybe or maybe will not hear. No, assurance, confidence. But since John starts talking about making personal requests in your hearings with God, he can't help but thinking about the family of God. Over and over throughout this letter, we have seen John talking about love for the brothers, loving those who share in the same life of the Father. So he can't help himself when he brings up praying for yourself, you must also pray for others. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. So we pray for the enduring, we pray for the persevering faith of our brothers and sisters to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. But then he says in verse 16, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Oh boy. Maybe when you heard Nick reading this, you were like, what did he just say? What in the world was that about? Uh, 1 John 5.16 is one of the most written upon and debated verses in the Bible. John says, not all sin leads to death, but there is a sin that leads to death. Uh, years ago, I once asked Ryan Kelly, the preaching pastor at Desert Springs, what he thought about 1 John 5.16, and he says, I have no idea. I've been postponing and postponing ever preaching through 1 John because I don't want to deal with that verse. He said, uh, when he gets to heaven, uh, maybe the first question that he ever asks uh, God might be, what in the world about 1 John 5.16? I guess that's one question I think mine might be. Jar Jar Binks, really? Would a good God allow that? There's probably lots of better questions than that. But uh, with a pinch of pastoral humility here, because this is really, really tough stuff. Uh, first of all, all sin is unrighteousness and interrupts fellowship and communion with God. As we thought about, our sin doesn't necessarily, if we are in Christ, our sin doesn't necessarily disrupt our union with Christ but it certainly disrupts our communion, our friendship, our ongoing uh, friendship and just knowing and walking with Christ, our daily living. And the Bible is certainly clear that all sin leads to death, both physical and spiritual. Now, there are dozens and dozens of interpretations and options here, but here's what I think is the most likely. The sin that leads to death in 5.16 is likely under the same umbrella category that Jesus gave in Matthew 12 of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. That kind of sin which is unforgivable, Jesus says in Matthew 12. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is exactly the kind of unbelief and action of those who are denying the teaching of the apostles and who have left the church in 1 John chapter 2. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is exactly what we described last week when you hear the testimony that God is giving about himself and says, nope, 
I don't believe that. You're a liar. Many commentators say something in the ballpark of that if you are worried about if, whether or not you have committed the sin that leads to death, then you actually haven't committed it. The very presence of remorse, the very presence of struggle in your life, struggle against sin is evidence that you have not committed this sin. But if you stay in a continual state of condemning God as a liar, this is unforgivable by its very nature. Because you never humble yourself before God. Because you never ask him for forgiveness. Thus committing a sin that leads to death. One that never results in repentance. So as we see and observe our brothers and sisters in everyday human sin, we should pray for them. And John says, God will give life. Through our prayers, he will hear and he will respond and he will give them life. But for those with impudent, fist-shaking defiance against God, John says, you don't have to actually pray for that kind of defiance. This is weird. Now notice, he doesn't prohibit it. He never says, don't pray for these kinds of people. He just says, I do not say that one should pray for that or them. In other words, I'm not commanding you to pray for them. But when we see our brother or sister in sin, the kind of sin that we know is interrupting their fellowship with God, interrupting their fellowship with others, it should grieve us. Now, this is surprising. Now, but I'm fairly confident that what John is saying is not that we should not pray for unbelievers at all. That's not what he is saying. We should do exactly what Kyle just led us in in praying for the entire Muslim world and praying for our unbelieving and lost neighbors and coworkers and family. Our prayers for the lost should be constant and ongoing. But our prayers for the saints, I think what John is arguing here should actually get a much bigger piece of the pie chart of our prayer life. That we are, like Paul models in like the first chapter of nearly all of his letters, we should be praying for the saints. Not necessarily even that their circumstances might change, but that their hearts might be rooted in faith. They might have eyes to believe and to walk after Christ. These are the kinds of prayers that we should be praying for one another daily, in our lives, for endurance, for ongoing repentance, especially when we observe our brothers and sisters in sin. We don't necessarily, as the first thing, go to them to condemn their sin. No, we are first moved in anguish for them. We pray for confession and repentance and humility. And then God will respond, likely, through our going to them. We should pray that God would sustain life and restore communion, and he will do it. So, because we know eternal life, and because we know who we are, children of God, intimate enough with God our Father that he hears our prayers for ourselves and for our brothers and sisters, the family of God, then thirdly, we know who we belong to, or to whom we belong, if you want to correct my grammar here, but we know who we belong to. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So, if you are a Christian, if you have been born of God, you do not sin anymore. 
Your head's just popped up. Right? That's what he's saying. Who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. Well, thoughts? What in the world do we do with this verse? Think back to what John has said, though, especially in the first half of chapter 3, that our trajectory has changed from death to life. Our trajectory of belonging to Satan, the evil one, now has changed into life, into belonging to God as his child. Our identity, our greatest sense of belonging is now in Christ, is now in his life. The eternal atmosphere of heaven has now overlapped onto this world of fleshly desires of sin and death. We will still sin, but because we have been born of him, because we have now been transferred into this kingdom of light, because we walk in this light of God's holiness, we see our sin clearly, and the pattern of our life is now repentance from sin and belief in Jesus, his righteous life credited to us, his sacrificial death on our behalf, and his effective resurrection, giving us spiritual resurrection and new birth, trajectory changing, realm-transferring life change. Does not keep on sinning, John says. We hate our sin, but we are motivated out of it because of the joy that Jesus offers. Or as one old Scottish preacher used to say, for every one look at the self, take 10 looks to Christ. This is 1 John. We should consider and reflect upon our sin. But for every one time we do that, take 10 looks to the glory of Jesus. The beauty and glory of the Son of God is what will motivate you out of your sin, not merely like an inward hatred for your sin. Our identity now belongs in him, the king in all his beauty. We worship our way into sin, and we worship our way out. God has, is the one who has done the saving, the redeeming, and the, sa- and the sustaining. And so, who do we belong to? For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. We are no longer our own, but have been bought with a price. The price of his own blood, himself. We Christians belong to God. We are no longer the owners of ourselves. We belong to God. We will always serve another. Whom will you serve? Yourself? Other gods? Or will you serve and belong to this one, the good and righteous one, the God of light? Which John will further explain. In verse 19, he says, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Now this is an incredibly important verse. Our first inclination might be as we read this verse, oh, come on, John. It's a little overreactive, right? Really, the whole world is in the power of the evil one? Sure, there's a lot wrong in the world, but for the most part, especially more and more these days, I think people are mostly good and the trajectory of mankind is fairly optimistic. But this is the biblical position. And it is in total agreement with other New Testament teachers like Paul and like Jesus. When Paul calls Satan the God of the age, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, or the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. And Jesus several times in John's gospel called Satan the ruler of the world. That's serious stuff. 
And yet, even as the ruler of this world and of this age, the decisive blow has been dealt to him at the cross. The evil one has been mortally wounded. And the only authority he has has been given to him by God. The evil one is on a leash. But he is nevertheless dangerous, just like a mortally wounded animal can still do considerable damage. Perhaps more so when it knows that he is mortally wounded. Still able to kill, to destroy. And so if this is true, Satan being the prince of the power of the air, the very air that we breathe is rebellion. The very air that we breathe is ingratitude. If that's true, then we should not be surprised when we encounter evil. When we encounter sinners behaving sinfully. We shouldn't expect it or we should expect it because the world lives in and for a kingdom that has its very face set against God. And so as Lloyd-Jones says, it is my attitude toward this verse that determines my own conduct and behavior. I am in a world that is speaking to me and addressing me constantly in its newspapers, its books, or if I might further fill in the blank for Lloyd-Jones a few decades later, this world is speaking to me in its Instagram, in its TikTok, in its TV shows, in its movies, its whole organization of life and its outlook. It is always making suggestions to me. Its advertisements, the people with whom I speak and with whom I mix, all these are making appeals to me. Is that true? It's true. So my response and reaction to all of this will be determined by the fact of whether I agree with the doctrine of this verse or not. And what is the doctrine of this verse? The doctrine of this verse is the same thing that we said from our look at worldliness in 1 John 2. That worldliness is anything that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. That is the world that we live in. And until we have daily, active, discerning antennae up all the time, we will be tempted to be just like the world, satisfied with Uh, satisfied without fellowship, satisfied without communion with God, finding pleasure, finding some sort of limited satisfaction in anything other than God. But those who believe in the name of Jesus Christ, however, these people can know to whom they belong. They can know because we have been transferred out of this domain of darkness and into a domain of light. Now that we have been born of him. John uses similar language here, but instead of saying that we have been born of God in chapter or verse 19, he says that we are from God. God is now the source, the fountainhead from which we receive life and meaning. We belong to him now. Our position is firm. We can know without a doubt that our master and Lord is no longer the prince of the power of the air. We can with confidence agree with John and 1 John 4, 4, little children, you are of God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is the victory that we have in the Lord Jesus who has brought us out of death and into life. And you know what all of this should produce in us? Actually, a great compassion for this world of death and darkness. Compassion for this world that is enslaved to the ruler of this age. Never arrogance, never condescension, never utter condemnation. 
We should not be uh, surprised when sinners behave sinfully. That's still in us even. How in the world should we be so arrogant or condescending? It should produce in us a longing that John expressed in 1 John 1.4, that his joy would somehow be incomplete until his readers shared in the fellowship that he experiences with the triune God. That should be our very way of living, that we, our joy is not complete until others are brought into this same fellowship. Seeing our unbelieving friends around us who are perishing should fill us with anguish for them but also a humble thankfulness that we are no longer part of that kingdom, no longer part of that way of death. We know our position, a redeemed and changed position. We know who we belong to. But now lastly, we can know who is true. Verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. And then, last verse of the letter, little children, keep yourselves from idols. John ends his letter here at first glance with perhaps much less structure than we might expect if we know Paul's letters very well. Uh, Paul will usually give some wrap-ups, his concluding remarks Lots of, uh, hey, say hi to this person for me when you get this letter. But none of that, none of that here with 1 John. It seems that John stopped writing. He was writing, he was really getting going about knowing God. And then uh, he gives this really weird command, completely out of left field, about idols. But there's a lot of structure here. How did John open his letter? said in the first few verses of this letter that he's writing this letter so that his readers might have fellowship with God. I have fellowship with God, and I have it through his son, Jesus Christ, whom I saw, whom I touched, he said. Jesus Christ, he is true. And now he's closing this letter in the exact same way. Jesus Christ has come, and he is true. He has given us understanding about God, and he is God's testimony about himself. We have fellowship with God and we are in him through his son, Jesus Christ. So I am writing this entire letter so that you might have this same fellowship with God as opposed to idols. His last sentence and command seems to be this kind of non sequitur, came out of left field. Uh, It doesn't follow the thought before it. Keep yourselves from idols, what? But no, why should you keep yourself from idols? Because they're not true. Because there's no life in them. Because there's no joy in them. Now we've talked a bunch about idols and idolatry over the years. My guess is none of us have golden statues in our houses or that we go to a temple to worship. But an idol is anything that takes the place in worship of God in your life. So we can just as easily worship the idol of success or popularity, of attractiveness or intelligence, of stuff, of cars and clothes and TVs, of even the idol of laziness, of comfort. We can worship the idol of romance or intimacy. Anything that you find yourself longing after because you think it will finally give you what you were always hoping for, what you were longing for. John says, keep yourself from those things 
because they are not true. Anything that your heart fills the blank in with, I would finally be happy if I had, I would finally be fulfilled if I received whatever that thing is, is a soul-sucking idol. All of the potential answers to those fill-in-the-blanks come from a forgetfulness of who we belong to. Paul Tripp rightfully says, you will either receive your identity vertically or you will shop for it horizontally. You will receive your identity of who you are as a beloved son of God vertically, beloved daughter of God vertically, or if you do not receive and deepen and grow in that identity, you will continue to go shopping, looking for more and more security and identity. Idols always offer the most attractive, immediate satisfaction, but they never show you the terms of agreement. They always hide the fine print, the fine print of death. They only take and take and never give anything in return but joylessness and death. So John says, do not settle for that. Go to the one who is true, Why would you go to these idols when you can know God who is true, who is life, who is light, who is joy? Don't be content with, to use C.S. Lewis's metaphor over and over again, don't settle for this mud pie in a slum when a holiday at the beach is being offered. If you have only been eating mud pies your entire life, mud tastes really great if that's all you've ever experienced. But if something better, more satisfying, more enduring, more life and joy giving is being offered, go to that. The whole point of 1 John is that you might have fellowship with God, a life of abundant and full joy. In which sometimes this life of being a Christian, of following Jesus, actually does feel like death does feel like loss. When we carry our cross, it means a life of death, a death of the self. The Christian life is actually not about short-term expression, short-term self-actualization, but of eternal life that is found in self-denial. It is a life of faith. To bring this all full circle, this is a life of faith. We don't just say that we have Faith in Jesus, but that doesn't actually do anything. A life of faith in Jesus is actually saying, I believe you, Lord Jesus, when you say that if we are to find our life, we must first lose it. I am coming to you in honesty about my life, in honesty about loss, in honesty about sin, in honesty about guilt, in honesty about shame, and I'm over that. Actually, real life is found in you, in the cross, but I am willing to follow you in those difficult things. Union with Christ, then, that kind of honesty and clinging to Jesus, that kind of union with Christ for eternity, then deepens our communion with our triune God. If I can leave you with one thing here, with 1 John, Christian, God loves you, really loves you. 
has committed his, for eternity, the plan for your salvation, the plan for your redemption, and he will keep his promises to you until the very end. This is good news, great news. God loves you so deeply, and it is into his life that he is inviting you today more and more to rest in, to grow in, to walk in, more deeply today, tomorrow, and eternally. The love of God, how vast, how wide, how free, it is there for us for eternity. And if you do not know this God and this gospel, well, 1 John is here for you as well that you might know God, that you might know eternal life, that you no longer have to stumble into the darkness, hoping and praying and keeping your fingers crossed that there might be some God out there or that you might please him with your life, but that you might know him and have life from death to life, from dark to light, from emptiness to fullness. Not overnight, not with a zap or a taking of the pill, over the course of your life, growing into this love for God. So to close our entire look at 1 John, I'll end with a quote from J.I. Packer who once said, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is the best thing in life? Everybody, to know God. This is the best Thing in life. This is what will sustain us to the very end. This is what will deepen our friendships and our care for one another, what will deepen and widen our friendships with those in the world to know God. Might we keep pressing into knowing him deeper and deeper for all eternity. Let's pray that he might help us in that. Our Father, we are thankful that you hear our prayers. We do not take that for granted that you hear us, the God of the universe, that we have a hearing with you because of our advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous. That you, O triune God, have planned, accomplished, and applied our redemption, our adoption into your family. Lord God, we pray that you might help us to see more and more clearly that over the course of the Many years of our lives, if you would give us years or decades together that we might grow in our understanding of your light, the kingdom of light, that we might agree with you more and more comprehensively and quickly about our sin, about the goodness of Jesus, that you might help us by your spirit to keep ourselves from idols, that we might have joy and have it abundantly. For your glory we pray, O God, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.